Today on Peace Talks Radio, the stories of two peace elders, two women who, into their 70s, worked in their own way for peace, including Peace Pilgrim, who between 1953 and 1981 walked the country for peace. And I just walk until given shelter, fast until given food. Don't even ask. It's given without asking. I tell you, people are good. There's a spark of good in everybody. And later we'll hear Sister Peggy O'Neill, who since the early 1980s became a beacon for peace in El Salvador, arriving during the worst of the Civil War there. I had my arms around this man, and it meant I was pushing away these AK-47s and realized no matter what I was saying, there was not going to be a mediation. Finally, I said, look, you're going to take him, but we both go together. Two inspiring peace women, peace elders, and more today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. And whether it's the search for inner peace or how we can resolve conflicts we may have with others in our families, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also tell the stories of peacemakers throughout history, the famous and the not-so-famous. And we'll delve a bit into that part of the mission statement today. As we consider two women, two elders, who deep into the later years of their lives made peace their goal. One, Catholic sister Peggy O'Neill was still at it at the time of our interview in 2012, going past a quarter century of living in El Salvador, landing there in the 1980s in the middle of the country's worst Civil War years. But first, the story of a woman who, in 1981, had a 28-year personal campaign for peace come to an abrupt end when she had just turned 73. See, in 1953, Mildred Norman started off from California's Rose Bowl Parade on New Year's Day on a walking tour of the entire country, an ongoing campaign for peace. She changed her name to make the point firm. During what would become an over 25,000-mile trek over the years, her new identity became Peace Pilgrim. Zach Rosen shares her story. When Peace Pilgrim started out, the Korean War was still going on and an ominous threat of a nuclear attack was on the mind of many Americans. And so, with Peace Pilgrim written across her chest, she was walking, as she called it, coast to coast for peace. For 28 years, the entire length of her journey, she never used money. Ever. She gave new meaning to the word minimalist. She wore the same thing every day, blue pants and a blue tunic, which held everything she owned. A pen, a comb a toothbrush, and a map. That's it. And I own only what I wear and carry, and I just walk until given shelter, fast until given food. Don't even ask. It's given without asking. I tell you, people are good. There's a spark of good in everybody. In July of 1981, the day before she died, Peace Pilgrim was interviewed by Ted Hayes, the manager of a small radio station in Knox, Indiana. Peace Pilgrim, you know, there are a certain number of people that would probably think of somebody like yourself as a kook or a nut. Do you have uh, a problem uh, overcoming this barrier with some people? 
Well, I'm quite sure that some of those who have just heard of me must think I'm completely off the beam. After all, I am doing something different, and pioneers have always been uh, looked upon as being a bit strange. But you see, I love people, and I see the good in them, and you're apt to reach what you see. The world is like a mirror. If you smile at it, it smiles at you. I love to smile, and so in general, I definitely receive smiles in return. I was driving along a road in Ohio at night, and I saw this figure, white-haired, with some kind of white lettering, walking along the road, and then as I drove by, kind of dashing a bit out of the way of the traffic, and I had no idea who it was. My name is Richard Polacy. I'm a um, book publisher and um, editor. Years after Polacy saw her walking on the side of the road, he met Peace Pilgrim, and they became friends. A decade after she died, he and some other friends collected her writings in a book. Peace is what we called her. We called her by her first name, Peace. <laughs> My name is Helene Young. And I am the sister of Peace Pilgrim, and uh, I am 97 years old. I live in Cologne, New Jersey, two miles outside of Egg Harbor, where uh, Peace Pilgrim and I were born and raised. I came from a very quiet life. I was born on a small farm on the outskirts of a small town. I had a woods to play in and a creek to swim in and room to grow. She was very much a, a, what they called a flapper in those days. Uh, she had to have the latest clothing. So she cha made so many changes in her life to a, a very simple, basic life. During the early years of my life, I discovered that money-making was easy, but not satisfying. We were brought up without a, a formal religion or politics. We were taught to think for ourselves, not follow the sheep. Out of a feeling of deep seeking for a meaningful way of life, I began to walk one night through the woods. And after I had walked almost all night, I came out into a clearing where the moonlight was shining down. And something just motivated me to speak. And I found myself saying, if you can use me for anything, please use me. Here I am, take all of me. Use me as you will, I withhold nothing. That night, I experienced the complete willingness without any reservations whatsoever to give my life to something beyond myself. Fifteen years passed between this striking moment of clarity and the official beginning of her pilgrimage. To prepare, one of the things she did was walk the entire length of the Appalachian Trail in one year. Peace Pilgrim was the first woman to do this. She was not interested in being a mother, and that was why she f knew that she could handle the pilgrimage, because she did not leave a family behind. She and her husband were divorced because she thought he should be a conscientious objector, and his sergeant told him that was grounds for divorce. You do not possess any other human being, no matter how closely related that other human being may be. No husband owns his wife, no wife owns her husband, no parents own their children. 
I'm Rebecca Solnit. I'm the author of Wanderlust, A History of Walking, a book that goes all over the world to talk about people on foot, including Peace Pilgrim. The pilgrimage traditionally dealt with disease and healing of self for loved ones, but she had taken on war, violence, and hate as plagues ravaging the world. She foreshadowed the shift in the nature of the pilgrimage from appealing for divine intervention or holy miracle to demanding political change, making the audience no longer God or the gods, but the public. We are so completely out of harmony that when we discover something like nuclear energy, our first thought is to use it for destruction. This is because our spiritual well-being lags so far behind our material well-being. It isn't more material advancement we need in this nuclear age. It is more spiritual advancement we need and need desperately so that we will know how to use constructively the material advancement we already have. The first year she was thrown in jail for vagrancy and they found out she wasn't a commie, so they let her go. Uh, she would uh, g gather the women prisoners together and teach them a little song and a little chant called the Fountain of Love. And she'd have them do this. So she, her mission, she felt that prisons and jails were wonderful places to uh, carry on a mission. She had no fear. The motto she had sewn on the back of her tunic when she started out, walking coast to coast for peace, quickly became outdated. By 1964, she had already walked 25,000 miles. Eventually, she stopped counting. She was very directed in her purpose. She knew that everybody had their own calling and their own mission, and this was specifically her own. She was simply a singular witness for peace. And you know her peace message was overcome, overcome evil, evil with, good. with good and falsehood with truth and hatred with love. There is a magic formula for resolving conflicts. It is this. Have as your objective the resolving of the conflict, not the gaining of advantage. There is a magic formula for avoiding conflict. It is this. Be concerned that you do not offend, not that you are not offended. That formula will work between men or between nations. As she became more well-known, Peace Pilgrim began getting invitations to speak at schools and churches. That's what brought her to Knox, Indiana in the summer of 1981. Was there anything about her that you remember? We didn't know who it was at first, not until it was in the paper. My name is Terry Bow, and I'm just a housewife. And my name is Tony Bow, and I run uh, the, the business here about collision repair. Peace Pilgrim, a woman who spent her life walking thousands of miles through every state and most of Canada, lost her life riding in a car. Uh, Tony and his wife, Terry, were outside uh, in the yard when the accident occurred. About 75 to 100 feet up the road there, approximately right where that utility pole is there. I got on the side of her. She was still alive when I got up there. I was talking to her, just telling her everything would be okay. That's about all I remember. Peace Pilgrim really ended up in the hands of the right people, just by serendipity. Even though we didn't know her, we didn't know her any of her writings or anything like that, we still lived her life, it, it, if, if it, you know, because I believe in exactly what she believes in, <laughs> uh, being free and uh, try to have a more peaceful world amongst people. Peace Pilgrim's journey ended on the side of that road in Indiana 30 years ago, 
but her followers say they continue to find meaning in her message and to be inspired by her example. Peace Pilgrim has been my guest today in her literature. She says, Peace Pilgrim is on my back, 25,000 miles on foot for peace. And she has finished walking those miles, but she continues to walk. For her vow is, I shall remain a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace, walking until I am given shelter and fasting until I am given food. Appears to be a most happy woman. I certainly am a happy person. Who could know God and not be joyous? I want to wish you all peace. Zach Rosen is an independent producer. A shorter version of his story about Peace Pilgrim was first broadcast on NPR's All Things Considered on January 1, 2013. Links to a film documentary of Peace Pilgrim and more is at our website, peacetalksradio.com. About the time of Peace Pilgrim's death in 1981, one of the least peaceful places in the news was El Salvador. A chaotic 12-year civil war in the Central American country was just into its second year then. Assassinations, death squads, massacres of unarmed civilians, including women and children, became a sad part of the landscape during those years. Priests and nuns weren't even safe. In 1980, the Salvadoran National Guard raped and murdered four American nuns and a laywoman. During 1982 and 1983, corrupt government forces killed approximately 8,000 civilians a year, according to University of New Mexico political science scholar William Stanley. And into the middle of all this came a Catholic sister named Peggy O'Neill. On a visit to New Mexico in 2012, she talked with reporter Megan Camrick about her time in Suchitoto, trying to find the love and nurture peace, more recently by creating a peace center for the community there. Tell us briefly what was going on at the time when you went to El Salvador. What was the Civil War, what was happening there? I visited El Salvador in 82, 83, I found El Salvador and fell in love immediately. John Sobrino told me I had no choice. I had to stay there. And he was one of the Jesuits at the University of Central America. Correct. He was not murdered because he was out of country. In 1989. Mm -hmm. um, So the war was in full swing at the time of our visit. I knew what was going to happen, I thought, to us. When we arrived, I I saw it for what it was. What did you see when you got there? Because this was a civil war. The government was very oppressive. There was an an uprising by leftist insurgents, the FMLN, and a lot of people caught in the middle of that. Yeah. When I first went, we went to a refugee space, a refugee camp, if you will, a safety area sponsored by the diocese. And it had uh, a staff of sisters, three of us, and uh, Jesuit refugee service volunteers. They were seasoned uh, Jesuit volunteers. And that is where I began to hear the stories. That is where I began to um, realize that this country was quite sick. But what we were doing where we were receiving through the International Red Cross into this safety space also wounded rebels. So we heard stories. We listened to the women talk about the lives of their spouses, their children, their 
uh, that, you know, serving and longing, and it was quite painful. What kind of stories did you hear that said you, led you to believe the country was very sick? I almost felt them more than heard them. My Spanish was not good. I felt this, you learn not to trust in a war um, in your own country. You have to steal yourself um, from um, just normally trusting neighbors. And we had in the refugee camp people from all parts of the country. And they would tell you that we are happy you're here because we can tell our story to you. As a Catholic sister, I was trusted. I was in a privileged position. Um, Were they there because of uh, war had broken out between the government and the rebels in their particular areas? Or were they driven out by government forces? Okay, Both. They were there because they couldn't stay any longer where they were being repressed and and murdered. For instance, um, in the town where I am now, I stayed in the refugee camp one year. In the town where I am now, Suchitoto, there were six massacres, each of which um, more than 155 people, and they were all civilians. And these, this was by the government troops. And this was by the government forces, harassing them for over five years, thinking that, um, well, this was their strategy. If we, we will catch the fish if we drain the sea. So we will get those rebels out if we make everybody go. Now, you knew, you mentioned the Mary Knowles, and you knew that priests and nuns had been murdered just for working with the poor in these areas, including... American churchwoman, three of the Mary Knowles in 1980. Weren't you afraid? Um, yes, yes, we were afraid. But that's not a prolonged feeling when you're in love with people that are easy to love. Um, I was not afraid in the refugee camp, uh, except one time uh, we were being shot at imagine in a, a declared safety space um, in international law was being broken uh, there were soldiers making believe one side were rebel forces and the other side were government forces but they were both government forces shooting at each other but we didn't know that wanting to frighten us in the refugee camp and I was in a sewing area with a group of women Well, we all fell to the floor, and I realized how big and fat I was. I was trying to get my tummy down so close into that floor (laughs) um, as these noises were happening. Finally, one woman began to pray. And, you know, we talk about base communities and open church, and she said, no psalm. Um, She said, the Hail Mary. And the second part of that prayer goes, pray for us now and at the hour of our death. I have never prayed that the same since. I prayed it in the moment, led by this woman who had been in those moments often um, with that same, yeah, it's a moment. But then we laughed after it that we survived. So you fear is funny in in moments like this, it's not sustained all the time. Um, I read a story one time you stepped between soldiers at a roadblock and a man they were planning to arrest. 
I'm Can you talk about you that? Read that? But that is true. It it very strange in a way. We were all in church. Padre Alberto was preaching, and we were going to go on, go on an excursion. And Pat Farrell, my dear friend, said to me, go out and check to make sure the bus knows it's leaving at this hour. Come back and tell us. You know how they make announcements after church. And so I went out, and at the bus stop, I saw a man running, being chased by another man. And he was running towards me, and then I realized he was really coming to me. And the man chasing him was an undercover agent in town of the army. So his stopping and my interfering blew his cover, which was probably the most drastic thing that happened. Um, But anyway, everybody gathered, and this man was frightened. And then after the the one man chasing him, by then two soldiers with AK-47s came. And again, you don't think, you just kind of respond. So um, I had my arms around this man, and it meant I was pushing away these AK-47s and realized no matter what I was saying, there was not going to be a mediation. Um, And so finally I said, look, you're going to take him, but we both go together. And I'll get into your truck first because... By then, a truck had come, and the driver got out, and I could tell he, too, saw that it was at a standstill. And he was relieved that I had broken this moment open. And um, so I got in first, and this little man from Copapayo came in after me. And I had seen that man the day before. His wife was a catechist. And that day, he was cleaning fish, and he looked strong to me, and his work, I, I just imaged him that day going home. Oh, wow, Jorge looks so in control. And that next day, he was like a little wounded bird. He was so... But anyway, I didn't know where they were going to take us, and I thought maybe Cojutepeque to a military cartel, but... No, they just went around the corner to where the local military were and made us sit for a couple of hours. And Anyway, it was because he had erased something in his ID card that a soldier had put there, and he knew you shouldn't have written it. And, oh, it was. But now, we went home together down the hill, and this man bought me charamuscos, which is a little like a Kool-Aid frozen, and... Um, he ate one, and I ate the other, and it was truly holy communion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Let's talk about what, if you hadn't been there, they take this man at that time yeah. in El Salvador. Yeah, he would have disappeared, or he would have been tortured. Um, yeah. In a moment more from Megan Camrick's interview with Sister Peggy O'Neill about her time in El Salvador during the brutal Civil War and a peace center she's helped create in Suchitoto that is healing the community from the deep wounds of that war. More when Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. With all of our episodes going back to 2002, available to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're spotlighting the stories of a couple of peace elders. We heard about Peace Pilgrim earlier in the show, who walked the country for peace into her 70s. And now we're visiting with Sister Peggy O'Neill, who herself is 70-plus and yet still keeps bringing her youthful energy to work for peace to help the town of Suchitoto heal from the wounds of the 12-year civil war of the 1980s and early 1990s in El Salvador. She was in that Central American country throughout that brutal time and is remembering for reporter Megan Camrick. Let me ask you, you mentioned John Soprino, the Jesuit priest, who's away when his community was massacred at the University of Central America. And I read something he wrote and said, the sisters came and took away the fear. The women said that to us. How did you do that? How did you take away the fear? This is the irony. Um, You know, we would pray together. We were four sisters during the war. And we would pray together mostly in quiet some of us like to do poetry. Some of us like to read scripture. So we decided we'd do our own thing, but then share at the end. And no matter what way we were entering into holy space personally, when we did the sharing, every now and then we would say, oh, God, I really didn't know if that's what I should have done or I could do it. But the women took away our fear. We would say that. And then one day... We heard the women say to each other, and when the sisters came, the sisters took away our fear. So it was mutual. Um, I, we just took our cues from the women, and, and we tried to absorb their strength, their courage, their, their being so valiant. They held the world together. You, there was a time when um, you had to evacuate with people ahead of some government troops. You ended up in a field at night with several women, including a mother and her baby, and she had a basket with her. Yeah. Uh, I heard you talk about this. Can you talk about that story? She had a cesta. She was alert to leaving quickly, but needing to bring things for the child. And, um, you know, in fire drills in the States, you leave everything and run. So I was obedient as a little fire school child. <clears throat> I didn't bring even my backpack. And what was that? What had precipitated this? Um, military troops were coming into the area, so they needed to get out. And so we wound up in a field, and um, the woman with the baby, uh, she, at about three in the morning, began to change the diapers. But in her can- canaster, or really it was a cesta, um, she had um, also tortillas. I was dying for something to eat, and um, the lady next to me said, oh, no, 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 to the mother. You, you, you have to feed your baby. We don't know where we'll be tomorrow, and we can't take your food, and you need a nurse. And I was so glad I didn't grab. But um, the woman with the tortillas looked at each of us and the both of us and said, oh, she said, no. She said, tonight we share our food. Tomorrow we share our hunger. So those are the kinds of images that um, glued me to want to um, listen more, stay there. That's such a wonderful example yeah. of what you talked about, the mutual support. Yeah. You went to be with the people of El Salvador, but it sounds like yeah. they gave you so much yeah. more 
perhaps than you had anticipated. You know, solidaridad, I think it's the new word for love, sororidad or fraternidad. Um, We have so over-sexualized the word love. Solidaridad is la tenura, the tenderness between peoples or of peoples. And um, I learned, I was grasped by the tenderness, the generosity, the courage, the faith-filled searching, not the sureness, the faith-filled searching every day. So it stretched my soul. Is that why you decided to stay after the Civil War ended in 1992? Yeah. So even after the war ended in 92... This play, peace did not come in no. many ways they to never, El Salvador. No, they always talk about post-war. They don't say, or the post-peace accords, but they don't say the war's over. So I'm really there to keep them on the farm, but not to just be farmers. We have youngsters who go to university. The new government has focused as much as it can on education with the little resources that they have. Now, this is uh, the FMLN actually won or the the election several right. years ago, yes. The FMLN has become a political party. It was the leftist group in the Civil right. War in the 80s, the rebel right. group. Yeah. And is, have you seen changes since that happened? Small steps, yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, we in the United States get so impatient so soon. And um, we expect from any president, I mean, we talk about this mythical 100 days, but four years is a short period of time, too, to make four changes. But when the issues are large, the, the Salvadoran people are much more patient. Their expectations are realistic. They're in for the long haul forever. And they will keep longing until the lion can lay down with the lamb. But uh, post-war, I, I still love what I do. I, um, I'm trying to create healing space, not just for me, but I am healed, by watching um, people learn to live with the trauma of war, the trauma of still being without things that are basic to life, uh, the trauma of no options for young people. I teach university people from the states in El Salvador, and I convince them that they, too, are filled with trauma, the trauma of too many options. We, at least in places like uh, El Salvador, can um, live in, in, in this pain and call it what it is. So I have formed a, a peace center. Yes, you formed. So, is yeah. it the Centro Arte para la Paz? Right. When did you When did you start? Seven it and years what is, ago. Oh, what is the focus of it? And its focus is to build a culture of peace uh, in a place where there were six massacres, Suchitoto, in a place where where there's still an economic war with the neoliberal model and um, oh, and and the residue in our psyches. Uh, the fear of the sound of helicopters. Um, but also, um, this is a way to not just discover how we can uh, go deep inside and touch with tenderness, gentleness, um, what we discover, the horror, the sounds, the memories, 
Um, but to deal with that, maybe paint it, sing it, dance it, shout it, uh, but touch it. And then touch everything outside, touch socially with the same kind of tenderness because the violence still is oxygen there. The violence of gangs, the violence of no options, the violence of poor health care, if any, some schooling, getting better and better. So the joy for me is to see the whole process of uh, things getting a little better slowly. It's a place of hope. It's a place, it's a sacred place. This is Peace Talks Radio, and we're talking with Sister Peggy O'Neill. She's a nun who has spent the last 25 years in El Salvador, and seven years ago she launched Centro Arte para la Paz in Suchitoto to help young people avoid violence. And why do classes on things like music and photography and yoga, why does that help diffuse violence from gangs or despair from poverty? Because it touches our deepest center of creativity. How do we open the horizons that there are other ways for youngsters who have so few formal options? So we're really an alternative educational center. Do you have examples of some of the young people who've come through the center? Yeah. And... uh, how it might have changed their future? Well, we have a few in university. Um, We have five veteran harpists who have been taught Celtic harp by a Canadian woman. Um, They come from the campo. They clean up after ducks and chickens and and they sit there like princes and princesses behind the harp. So we play guitars and harp, and now we have a pianist, and, and we do yoga, and we do skateboards, and we do cooperative games. And so young people come every day and uh, never mark the walls. They, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's beautiful. And I think they realize that they're surrounded by beauty and they feel it from the inside out once they, once they come. It's how do the young people, especially the young men, mm-hmm. um, find that alternative culture because the pull of the gangs is very strong there. Yeah. The um, liberation theologians talked about um, an option for the poor and I make every day an option for youth. It's hard to be young in El Salvador, in Honduras, in Guatemala um, today. Uh, Kids are all suspect. If they're not engaged, they're looked upon, maybe they are, who knows. So what we have are courses. I wish we had enough funds. I mean, everything we do is gratis. The people do not pay for any courses. So everything we do, we have to really write projects for and get donations. But right now, we're trying to have our young people deal with the fear of resisting being recruited into a gang. Because if you are even tapped and you say no, you may be tapped later in a harsh way. Mm. I'm being very gentle, or I'm saying that, but you may, mm-hmm. um, or your family may be attacked. So uh, we, we have a wonderful psychologist friend who has been very generous. We pay her something, but like very little. Um, but she has, an, she has taught us or taught the youngsters mechanisms in which to deal with their own fears and, and also with parents, creative ways of disciplining. In El Salvador, there's either nothing or it's still a little violent when it comes to discipline. Is giving 
uh, young people that idea that there is potential in their lives. Yeah. Is that integral to creating a more peaceful country in El Salvador, to yeah. creating an outlook that's peace rather than war? Absolutely. How many kids have you served since opening? Well, I don't know how many youngsters, but in the last three years, we have served 65,000. Over 65,000 have come and used us in one form. Some are clients and some um, just uh, come because our business, you always have to be self-sustaining. Our business is space rental. It has become a symbol of hope to all of the people in Suchitoto. It is a local organization, a local association, and um, it is to serve the people of Suchitoto. We'll conclude Megan Camrick's conversation with Sister Peggy O'Neill about her time and work in El Salvador, trying to create a culture of peace out of the ruin of 12 years of civil war and ongoing economic strife. Then a little bit later in our program, some background on the making of the very first Peace Talks radio episode, all after this short break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Find us online at peacetalksradio.com and or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catholic sister Peggy O'Neill is one of our guests today. She's talking with reporter Megan Camrick about her time helping refugees in the midst of El Salvador's devastating civil war and staying on in the war's aftermath into the 21st century and well into her own older years to help heal the wounds of war and foster a culture of peace, in part with the creation of a peace center in her town of Suchitoto. What I have grown to know in El Salvador about the basics of faith, it's not doctrine, it's not theory, it's, it's falling into each other's arms and knowing you're going to make mistakes and to love like Jesus loved and to forgive and to cry and to laugh and to be human. What do you think you've learned about peacemaking from these experiences that listeners might be able to apply to their own lives here? Well, I guess we have to be peace-filled and peacemakers. We really have to, I think, be humble. Um, like I said, when I first went to El Salvador, I had a PhD. I spoke like a two-year-old for a long time. In Spanish. In Spanish. And um, it stretched my soul. I had to admit fear as an adult. Like you said, wasn't, weren't you afraid from time to time? Yeah. You needed, I couldn't have done it on, on my own. I, we needed each other. We sisters. 
We got supportive family. I think my family thought, well, she'll be back soon. She has to get it out of her system, you know, that kind of thing, you know. (laughs) She'll come home. But um, that was just it. It was getting into my system. Um, And it probably would have happened, I hope, in New Rochelle, New York, where I used to work, that somehow my soul would have been stretched by people my students, it was always being stretched. But this place, I guess because you move into another culture, you look uh, more intently because nothing is business as usual. So I was looking harder and seeing the inner meaning of more, the inner meaning of reality and human existence, what's really important, no? And so I think to be a peacemaker, that is what we have to do. I think it's harder here hmm. because we live in more we, we live more isolated from each other. I mean, uh, you, in in El Salvador, when you walk out of your house, you're always going to meet people because we all walk, and you say Buenos dias, como amaneció, good morning. How did the dawn break for you? Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> now these are. So poetic. Have you tried to do that here? Yeah, uh, imagine. <laughs> but, uh, good morning. Well, I do look at people. Um, most sisters do. That's how I know women who are sisters, even though they don't have habits on. Or, I mean, women like me look at each other. You know, I'm. But I think there's something about that. The conversation continues. You keep walking. Buenos dias, como amaneció, bien, bien. Oh, I woke up a little hungry, con hambre. Um, and then you say, adios, pues, goodbye. Que le vaya bien, igualmente. So you have this conversation. There's a way in which you can't ignore that the other is truly part of my life. Um, it's a different reason for my going to celebrate, for instance, Eucharist. I don't really go to hear what the priest breaks open all of the time because I'm too tired to listen. Or I don't <laughs> like what's being interpreted. I, but sometimes I'm right there listening. I really go to see with whom I'm on the journey. I do say this. The people who live through this conflict, I'll give you a story. This man said to me, sister, um, if five years ago, no, 25 years ago, somebody came to me and said, would you like to own your own land? Because the peasants couldn't own land. Would you like to own your own land? Of course, I would say to that man. And then if the man said to me, give me your wife and two sons, and I will give you three and a half months sanas, I would have said, says the man to me, what? No. But that's exactly what happened. So in hindsight, the pain of that struggle. But what he said to me now is, and guess what, sister? I can't afford to plant what is now my land Mm -hmm. with the economics Mm -hmm. that has just made it impossible. So again, but he hopes, like we all hope, that this next generation doesn't become so desperate, doesn't lack imagination and creativity and devise a better way to say this has to stop, that they won't pick up guns. That is their fear Mm. because they can still feel what the loss was. But those who were born after 
know about it, maybe a paragraph from a book, but maybe more now from our museum, will begin to see the cost. So that will never be a choice. Well, many say we need to build a culture of peace in our own American civilization. How do you think we should start? I guess we always have to start with ourselves small, our families, et cetera, et cetera. I think we've made giant steps during my lifetime with peace marches, with civil rights victories, with we here in the United States just, we must learn how to sustain the wonderful things we invent or the wonderful movements we've jettisoned like civil rights. And, but I think we always have in the back of our minds quick fix, We've done it. We kind of wash our hands now and get on with life as usual. We do not know how to develop a night vision. We don't know how to stay in the dark. We think the answers are going to come from outside, not from the struggle of really staying long enough with the questions. Like after 9-11, why did they do that to us? What don't they like about us? Don't they know we want the best for everybody? Don't they know how generous we are? Don't they... Well, what is it? We didn't stay, but two weeks we were attacking. And I think that's it. We, we don't know how. You know, um, no one would ever say in El Salvador, we have to be number one. Oh, my goodness. But that's what everybody here grows up with. We've got to stay there on top. And there's a violence in that. We've got to admit we do things well and not so well sometimes and ask the big this the questions. Call Rahner, the I guess the most important twentieth century Christian theologian, um, and he was a Catholic priest. He said what it means to be human is to be a questioner. And um, it seems to me that that wasn't heard by many churches. They think they have the answers. What it means to be human is to continue to question, to be on the search, although we're pilgrim people searching. It's like the Canterbury Tales. Um, you don't even arrive at where you're going. You know, It's um, the journey. It's the journey. The destination is the journey. You know? And we're on it together. And um, So I think what we have to do here is get back to front porches instead of backyard barbecues. And we have to rearrange um, how we think about who we are and why we are and the burden to think we're number one. You know, my poor father thought he needed to know everything. No, it's a, a mirror of the United States. We don't know everything. Let's ask, let's read, let's search, let's pray, let's hope. That's another thing. How do we learn to hope collectively? Like we hope for personal things so strongly, and and it's wonderful. You do have to, but how do we hope as a people? And in El Salvador, it's that communal longing, communal hope. Like when I think of human rights, I used to think so individually, the right of a reporter to speak the truth, the right to, they think of the right to education, they think collectively, the right to health care. It's, it's, it's always the community's rights. So that has, 
what is the world's rights? What are the planet's rights? How, how does my having so much keep so many from having the basics? And that's what the question is. It's, it's not that we want to make everybody poor or we want to, you know, to flatten it. We just need to be more creative about making sure everybody has what they need to be a good human being. You can hear an extended version of Megan Camerick's interview with Sister Peggy O'Neill about her ongoing adventures in El Salvador. Read a partial transcript, see some pictures, all at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. To close today's show, a little storytelling on ourselves. Not long ago, to mark the 10th anniversary of Peace Talks Radio, our home station, KUNM in Albuquerque, gathered our Peace Talks Radio team, myself, Paul Ingalls, Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider, who was in Washington, D.C. at the time, all on the air one morning to talk about our series and visit with callers. We'll include excerpts from that session from time to time on our show, and here's one that begins with KUNM News host Elaine Bumgardel. I wanted to start off first by um, asking Paul and Suzanne to just briefly explain what was the seed, what was the... um, the seed that was planted for you two that that led to this this program to creating this program how did it come about mm. you want to tag team this one with me suzanne will do okay well it 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 did come out of 911 in a sense um because suzanne and i were married at the time and we were dealing with the emotion of that event like anyone else and i think after a period of confusion and mourning um, we started having conversations about you know, what could we uh, do to respond as we were sure to be going into a period of time where war and conflict and violence uh, was going to be dominating uh, the media landscape, especially. And we started with lots of different ideas. I don't know, Suze, you want to talk about some of the earlier notions that we had? Well, yeah, I think the main thing is we looked at the show as an alternative so we saw radio and TV news as really violent. And what we wanted to do was offer people an alternative because we knew people were making teas. We didn't know how. And so we started in New Mexico with things like parenting, race relations. We started also with um, the Department of Peace. Right, Paul? Yeah, those were among the first shows that, uh, that we did when we started a, a half-hour uh, local series on on KUNM. I can also remember that initially we had talked about doing a number of large live events. I think maybe that was the first sort of uh, iteration of it was to uh, rent an auditorium. I, I think we talked about like going around the country and renting an auditorium in different places and trying to talk with really big names in peacemaking and conflict resolution in front of an audience. I think initially we might have just thought about, I don't know, was it like 10 programs? We, we sat down and tried to figure out how much that would cost and what that would take. <laughs> <laughs> kind of got sticker shock. And then realizing that, you know, to do it well, you have to get funding for it. And if you don't have a track record, then people aren't going to fund you. So we started small. And uh, the first two years, we just volunteered to uh, produce a, a, a monthly show a half hour on KUNM, primarily talking with folks in our community uh, who work in nonviolence and conflict resolution. Suzanne, what is one of those early interviews that you remember that 
was meaningful to you that made you feel like, yes, this is what we wanted to be doing? Well, it would be the very first one, and that was with Eric Kolvig. Now, that one we did live, like Paul said, we did in front of a studio audience, and I was really nervous. I remember I had just come back from a retreat, like nine days of silence, and Eric looked at me, and he said, don't worry, it'll be fine. And it was called Making Peace with Ourselves after 9-11, and he was awesome. That was when I said, oh my gosh, I really want to give peace to everybody. Some some listeners may know who Eric Kolvig is, but can you explain who he is? Yeah, he is a meditation teacher, and so he's really steeped in Buddhism, and he knew how to explain to people, what do you do when you're really nervous and you're feeling anxiety about 9-11 or getting on a plane or anything? He was really super, and all of our shows are archived on Peace Talks Radio, so the very first show with him is even archived. Suze, we have a a clip from that show, and uh, I think it's delightful because we can both hear the nervousness in your voice, but also uh, a little bit of the wisdom of Eric Kolvik. So let's listen to that now. Okay. We're all faced with these ongoing threats of more terrorist attacks. And I notice myself, I worry a lot, particularly when I'm traveling. So what helps you the most to manage this kind of worry and to maintain inner calm? One of my teachers once said to me, if you want peace, if you want to be happy, then develop a heart that is ready for anything. Easy to say, but, uh, but I think for, for me in part, developing inner peace in challenging times, keeping our heart open in hell, which sometimes we're called to do, means really engaging fear, really engaging the anxiety itself immediately. Engaging the anxiety. When I get anxiety, boy, I'm sweating, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> my heart is pounding. Right. How do I engage that? Well, you know, it's a, Franklin Roosevelt, when he first became president, his very first words to this country are the ones that are most memorable. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. This was in the middle of the Great Depression. A lot of people were suffering. In order to get past fear, to work our way through fear, we have to engage it directly to see what it is. Fear is always about something in the future. It's never about something that's happening in the moment. The future doesn't exist. Fear is a projection of something that may or may not happen. And when you see that, if you can see you're simply projecting something into the future, you don't have to believe it. You can say, I don't need to believe this. And to come back to whatever your present situation, no matter how challenging it is, by reducing the fear, your present situation is much more workable. Just one little example is uh, years ago, I was doing some deep therapeutic work and I was working with some severe trauma that I had as a child. And uh, as a result of doing that work, uh, terror actually came up. And not just in the therapeutic situation. So I was driving to work one day and I was experiencing terror. My hair was standing straight up, you know, that there were these waves of energy going through my body. Uh, Very intense experience. My mind happened to be strong at that moment, uh, and, uh, and so I knew it was just fear, and I was able to hold it. So as, as I just held fear there and just kept driving, I got to work, and a coworker uh, greeted me and said, how are you doing? And I said, well, 
I'm experiencing terror right now, but otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. In that moment, I didn't have to believe the terror. And so it was possible to feel all the physiological reactions and all of the, uh, the contraction in the mind and say, okay, this is just fear. So that was a that was a clip from one of the, from the first episode was it with with Eric or one of the first episodes it was actually, with Eric well, Colvig. It was actually our pilot episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a program though that was distributed nationally because there was a national uh, radio consortium effort to produce programs a year after 9/11. So we taped that in July of 2002 and it aired around the country around around September. Mm-hmm. And one thing I, I feel really good about that program and Suzanne and I kind of disagreed about you know, Eric as a guest at first. Of course it, it came out so well uh, and I think looking back now it was just the perfect place to start our journey on peace talks because we sort of look at a response to uh, conflict as concentric circles. And while everybody at that time was all abuzz about what to do in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and all these faraway places, really the work has to start, you know, with how each one of us are, are dealing with either that specific conflict or all the other conflicts that go on in our lives. And so it was a very central place to begin, and then I think it was sort of a natural progression that as we added shows on, and you can just sort of look at the titles, you know, the next show or the first one in the series was about peaceful parenting and then race relations and how we interact with each other. But then sometimes we'd always come back to how do we interact with ourselves uh, and and how we can address our own conflicts that way. And it felt very authentic and it was really a great place to start. At peacetalksradio.com, you can find a link to that entire hour-long call-in program about our series right on the episode page for this particular program, which we called Peace Elders 2 from our 2013 season. You can hear this whole program again there, too. That's at peacetalksradio.com, where all of the programs in our series are archived dating back to 2002. You can catch our email address there, too, and we'd love to hear your feedback on our shows, questions, comments, and your own peacemaking stories. You can order CDs, sign up for a free podcast or free newsletter. That's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. We have our own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that survives apart from your local public radio station. And any donation to our organization really helps. Find out how at peacetalksradio.com. Support for the program also comes from the Paul Bartlett Ray Peace Prize, the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Good Radio Show's executive director is Nola Daves-Moses. Allie Adelman composed and performed our theme music. Thanks to Zach Rosen and Megan Kamrick for today's contributions. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.